This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Daniel Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Michael Gerber, the editor and publisher of The American Bystander and all-star print humor quarterly. He's also been called the unofficial mayor of Santa Monica, California. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Danny. It's really nice to be here. It's so good to have you here. I have, you know, enjoyed your work immensely. And and obviously I have occasionally contributed to the American Bystander. So I yes. know you through that. Um, what I'd like to know is, is there an unofficial chamber of commerce or an unofficial <laughs> city councilor? Like how, how far down does the unofficial government of Santa Monica go? Um, well, you know, what's funny about that is that, uh, so my wife calls me the unofficial mayor because I love it here so much. And so anybody who comes to visit, I'm like, you got to move here. It's great. And, and I take them around to all the little places. But the interesting thing about it is that it's a rich little town. And I think its government is a little bit um, idiosyncratically put together. And so as I've gotten to, as I've lived here for 16 years, and as I've lived here, I've recognized that it's like, there's the government, and then there's how the city kind of really works. You know, the businesses that move in and the, the real estate people and all that sort of stuff. So I'm taking your conversation into a, a rather serious direction, but it's a little, I'm always kind of interested in how the sausage is getting made in a, in a place like this. So, yes. It is, I mean, as you know, it is a, a fairly unusual town. And I, I really yeah. now, I'm wondering how many other people are like gunning for unofficial mayor of Santa Monica. <laughs> Um, and whether or not, like, there'd be a fight. Yeah, there'd be, there's definitely, what is it, a runoff here? Or is it a primary? What do they call it in California? That sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there would be because it is it is a lovely place. Um, and, but the interesting thing about me in Santa Monica is that I, uh, and you may be hearing the garbage trucks of Santa Monica, um, is that I never expected to like living in Los Angeles or Southern California. People throughout the 90s when there was a big gold rush in television comedy out here, I was living in New York and working as a writer and starving, like literally starving. And they'd say, come out to Los Angeles, you know, work on television, work on this sitcom or that sitcom. And I'd say, no, 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 I'm a literary person. New York is where I was aimed to go when I was five years old, and this is where I'm going to stay. And we only moved out here in 2005 for my wife to go to grad school. But the moment that we did, I was like, what have I done with my life? This is exactly where I should be. So it's really nice. And in fact, one of the reasons I love it so much is it's so far from the rest of my business. You know, uh, book and magazine publishing is all in New York, and I'm as far from that as you can get without getting wet. Well, I think that that is a kind of beautiful place to start. And now I'm like deeply, deeply invested in the history of Santa Monica because I've been trying to remember if Santa Monica was or wasn't the place where, um, do you remember the magazine Wet, the the guide to gourmet bathing? Like that's, no. Oh, that's when was one of this? Those, like, it was like a 70s and 80s publication. It's like what? up there in my brain with like Army Man in terms of just like incredibly short-lived publications that I associate with various like strange towns in California, although I couldn't swear to you that Army Man wasn't from some guys in New York as well. But um, Army Man I, was actually from uh, George Meyer, who's a friend of mine and, a, uh, and your fellow bystander. 
Because when I, I was in college, Army Man was like a revelation. We had, you know, uh, anyway, if you want to talk zines, that's like one of my passions of life. Yeah. Okay. So we'll we'll get back on to both of those later, definitely, and if if not, uh, just after the show. But yeah, the 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 magazine of gourmet bathing, they um, mm-hmm. eventually came out with like a big coffee table book this last year. And so I've been going through like the old back issues and like oh, that's they great had, for a while. Like uh, you know, uh, David Lynch was writing for it. Like it was oh, in, sure, of course he was. But it was Venice. That's right. So it was Leonard Corrin, and he was in Venice, which is yes, super yes. close. Yeah, I think it counts. I think it counts as part of the like Santa Monica vibe. We're going into a totally different sort of project, which is trying to advise people who are dealing with um, different crises in their lives and particularly uh, other people's moms, which is something that's very much on my mind today. I wrote a piece earlier today about um, a book that was really popular in the 90s called Reviving Ophelia and imagining like I came to that book mostly through the moms that I knew. Like this was a book that the moms of my friends owned. Yes. I think I should just read this letter because otherwise we'll never get into it. The subject is weaponized femininity, which certainly got my attention. Ever since she picked up a pair of scissors and cut her hair off at 10, my girlfriend and her mom have been locked in a battle of wills about how butch my girlfriend, quote, should be. She's strong and self-aware and chooses every day to be herself, although she's confided in me how much her mom's disapproval hurts her. Without getting into fights by telling her mom what I really think, I try to run interference, either by politely disagreeing or reframing a comment to show that things like quote-unquote looking masculine aren't an insult, and then to redirect the conversation. Obviously, I'm wildly attracted to my girlfriend, and I make sure she always knows. No matter what I do, though, I feel like I'm undermining my support because I'm the traditionally quote-unquote feminine woman her mom wants her to be. I know there are as many ways to be a woman as there are women. So my feeling comfortable in dresses and makeup has nothing to do with how I see her. But even when I point this out over and over, her mom uses compliments about my appearance to backhandedly insult her daughters. Worse, she always wants to take me on bonding activities like getting mani-pedis or shopping and talks about the quote-unquote pain of not having a daughter who lets her do these things. She also asks to spend time one-on-one with me way more than her actual daughter. My girlfriend always encourages me to go, and we've talked about getting married, so I feel like I should spend time with her mom. But I also feel like I'm at best being complacent about this constant hurtful damage by doing so, and also simply by being interested in these things. My sweet girlfriend always says that it's her and her mom's issue, and that she doesn't blame me, but I kind of blame me. How can I better support and uplift her in the face of this constant nagging, which frankly feels like verbal abuse at this point, when how I look and act is fueling it? Mm. Boy, I felt this one. Did you? Not necessarily in the sense that I've been in this exact position, although I've, I've seen different versions of this play out. I think more just that real sense of like, my partner's parent likes me to such an extent that they are now using me to fuel, like, putting down their own kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in, the, in the guerrilla warfare of the family. Mm-hmm. I, I have to say, um, and I don't know if this is therapy or being from the Midwest or both, but as you read this question, my immediate response is to just, to not have an opinion and to say, that must be really hard. Of course, this is not what we're supposed to do here today, so I have to get over that. But um, I think that's a lovely place to start. 
you know, because it is that that is this this kind of stuff is just from that letter. I can hear that it's so sticky that it's been going on for so long that there is that there's a ton of subterranean stuff going on in this. That none of it is really what it, it it's it's all being it's all ex, whatever is being expressed on the top level is not the issue as much as whatever's going on underneath. Yeah. But when I read this, and when, then again when I heard it from you. I felt a lot of sadness, and I felt a lot of sadness specifically for the mom, because nobody ever has done something for good because they've been shamed in that way. Hmm. Like, you know, like you can do something for a while and feel resentful about it, but eventually you're going to stop uh, if you're a a well-formed adult. Because in any case, I just thought to myself, does her mom know the amount of pain she's causing her daughter? And if her mom doesn't know, then somebody should tell the mom, you know, do you realize how painful this is? And if the mom does know, well, then is that really a person that you want to be close to in the first place? I think those are really useful questions. I am inclined to to feel at kind of at best brusque impatience with the mother in question and at worst, you know, just outright hostility. Yeah, right. But, That's right. Um, you know, I'm also aware that there are a number of ways that this letter writer and her girlfriend might decide to handle the question of her mom, all of which I think would be fine. Like, I think if the two of them ultimately decided it would be too exhausting and not worth the hassle to, like, have a big hash-out fight, let's think of your mom as a person to be sort of, like, managed and figure out how to do that with the least energy that is required from both of us and then just continue to live our lives in a way that mostly feels good to us. I could also see way on the other end of the spectrum, like, you know, I really want to be able to talk to your mom about um, the things that she says, even though they are not directed at me. Is that yeah. okay with you? Do you have something that you would want to say? Like, all those things are on the table. So I would say, you know, first for the letter writer, that question at the end, you know, uh, how I look and act is fueling it. I hope the letter writer is aware that you are not causing this by being like, into dresses and makeup. My my read there was it was a little bit like, I know it's not my fault, but I feel like it is, but I just really want to stress, you are not causing this. It is not, in fact, like an inevitable reaction that her mother has to keep being, you know, an asshole about her butchness. And that, of course, by virtue of showing up and being like, I own lip gloss, naturally, she's just going to have to keep saying that. But yeah, I mean, obviously, as always, like, the place to start is by talking to your girlfriend, I think. Um, I, I want to share something in my personal experience that may be helpful. Mm-hmm. So um, I have a slight case of cerebral palsy, which makes me short. And it makes me, when I was a kid, it made me kind of unable to be very successful in the sort of physical, the, the kind of masculine aspect of that traditional femininity. And so, um, of course, I had to make my own peace with all of those things and accept myself for who I was. And that was ultimately, that was a long journey, but it was an ultimately healing journey. To the degree that my parents accepted me for who I was, that helped me on that journey. To the degree that they resisted it, it was about them. But at a certain point, and this is maybe what I'd say to the letter writer and to her girlfriend, say, at a certain point in your development as a person, you're going to collect the people around you that make you feel good that make you feel good about yourself. And people who, whatever their title or their biological function in your life, if they don't make you feel good, sooner or later, you're going to stop associating with them very much. And so that's kind of, 
that's kind of what you were saying. Like, if you want to manage your mom, of course, that's a, one way to do it. But to, to have a really full, and this, and this letter writer sounds like she's in her 20s, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're talking 40 more years with, with your mom, at some point, she's going to have to decide to accept her daughter, however she wants to present. Um, and I don't think that there's any, I don't think that anybody but her mom can make that decision. Yeah. And, and I, I think that is a useful point too, because it speaks back to that kind of earlier question of, you're right that it doesn't seem like the letter writer's girlfriend has yet had the kind of bigger conversation of like, mom, this is exhausting. I hate this. But it is also certainly true that the letter writer has frequently like politely disagreed or redirected. So it's not like the mom's gotten zero feedback. And even beyond the question of feedback, she knows what she's doing. She might not be perfectly in tune with all the different like reverberations it might have, but she knows that she's making digs about her daughter's appearance. She, I think, probably thinks that it's all in the interest of a good cause um, or wants to downplay how hurtful it might be, but she does, I think, know what she is doing. So I do want to make it clear, I don't think this is the sort of situation where like she might be genuinely surprised to learn that this is hurtful. Like I think she knows that she is doing something unkind. Um, and it's also like just ineffective. Like she's been a dick about this since her kid was 10. Her kid is at least contemplating getting married at some point in the near future. So I think we can guess it's at least 15 years on. Doesn't sound like all her like shitty little digs about, oh, if only you had flowing locks of hair um, have ever produced a femme kid. It's just always like. Well, this is what I was saying at the beginning of the conversation. Like that doesn't work. (laughs) You know, making somebody feel bad about their appearance because it doesn't jive with what you, what you want for yourself or what you want for your daughter or whatever. It's a a strategy designed to drive your kid away from you. You know, that's, that's what, that's what would happen. Yeah. And so letter writer, I think maybe the way to bring this to your partner is, um, You have, I think, grounds to move from polite disagreement to slightly firmer correction on your own behalf. Um, And again, I I think you should run this by your girlfriend first, in part because this is primarily her relationship. But I also don't think you need to frame this as like something you are saying for your girlfriend, but because it affects you. Like if, if this woman weren't your girlfriend's mom, and you were just going out occasionally for Manny Petties with some woman who would periodically say things that were disparaging about your girlfriend's appearance, but was also like, but you look great. I don't think you would say like, I hope you stop, but let's get Manny Petties again next Friday. I think you would say <laughs> right. rightly, this is my girlfriend. I love her. You're you're saying something unkind towards her. Don't do that. Like you have offended me. You know, like you are speaking disparagingly about my partner whom I love knock it off or we will not be spending time together again. So yeah, I I think I would frame it to the girlfriend as like, I'm not having a good time on these outings because she says shitty things about you. And when I do the polite redirect, that doesn't work. So what I propose is that I'm going to say something a little bit more robust, like, Sally, you say stuff like this a lot. It's very mean. I don't know if you think I would enjoy hearing you disparage my partner, but let me disabuse you of that notion. You need to stop. Like, Mm -hmm. fully just say, like, you need to stop this. You do this a lot, and you need to stop. And getting real firm, like, if she she does it again, like, interrupt her. 
again, politely with a, with a lovely smile, um, balancing a comportment <laughs> book on your head if you want. But like you absolutely have grounds on your own behalf to get firm with her. Yes, I would agree with that. I will also say that mothers and daughters like fathers and sons, that is a, that is nitroglycerin. That relationship is nitroglycerin. And I speak as someone who just had his 20th wedding anniversary. That when my mother, or when, 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 <laughs> when my wife is talking about her mom or her mom is talking about my wife, even my sister and my mom, as the spouse or the friend or whatever, I always acknowledge that that is a really primal struggle. And, and, at, the bo- and at the bottom of this letter is your partner's mother needs to recognize your partner's autonomy and individuality. And that's the end of it. She just needs to recognize that she's not a kid. She's an adult. Yeah, and God, I mean, if, saying this about a, to a kid is worse, right? Like, that's, that's the sad thing, too, is like, it would be— Exactly. It was worse when she did it when the kid was 10. It's bad now. What's interesting, Danny, is that she's, she obviously said it to her daughter when, the, when her daughter was a kid. And what reaction did she get? She got her daughter choosing to— act and dress and be the person that she needs to be. And so I look at that and I go, oh, well, this woman is clearly strong enough to do whatever she needs to do in regards to her mom. She should do it. Her partner should assist in whatever way is, seems appropriate to those two. But the issue is, you know, after you get to be nine, uh, you know, your parents should have less and less opinions about that kind of stuff. It doesn't affect them. Yeah. And, and so, you know, letter writer, I really understand, obviously, why you don't want to get into a fight with her mom. And I don't say yeah, this because right. I want to encourage you to get into a <laughs> knockdown, drag out fight where you're like, and here's everything I've heard you did when my girlfriend was a kid that I think sucks. Totally get that you don't want to overstep that boundary. Um, but, you know, you, you say, you know, my girlfriend says it's her and her mom's issue. And I think one of the things that you can say to your girlfriend is like, it's not just your guys' issue. Again, like leaving her lots of room to decide when and to what degree she wants to talk about this with her mom directly. But like this affects you directly. It affects you regularly. You have a right to say something on your own behalf. It doesn't mean you have to get into a whole conversation about like their entire history of their relationship, but it is absolutely okay. And I think, frankly, necessary for you to say pretty clearly, you need to stop doing this. And if you do it again, I'm going to cut you off and say, stop. And I will Mm -hmm. keep doing that until I don't have to interrupt you anymore. And if your girlfriend gets really nervous about that, you know, talk it through with her in advance. But I I think that should be your goal. And if, if your girlfriend is just like, I can't imagine you saying that without it like blowing things up. Then I think that's your moment to say like, then you and I need to talk about some other alternatives because I'm not going to keep going to get Manny Petties with this woman. I'm willing to discuss like politely sitting through a Mother's Day brunch together and like sitting (laughs) with you on like a 10 minute phone call every month or something. But I'm not going to cultivate a like besties relationship with this fucking asshole who talks shit about my, the love of my life to me. Like, fuck you. And, and also a besties relationship that, as uh, you said earlier, is kind of part of this, a subtle campaign to what? Make her daughter change her appearance? Uh, you know, at Force a certain them point, your butch kid? Like, what the yeah. hell? At a certain point, the primary loyalty has to be to your partner. And any time that parents get in the middle of that, that has to be cut off. Yeah. So. And, and good luck. I would love to hear a little bit more about how either the conversation with your girlfriend goes or eventually if you do say something else to her mother. Um, please write back if you get the chance. 
think this is a good moment to move into our next letter, which I have to say, I've gone really back and forth on as, as I've reread it. So I'm interested to hear kind of where you feel like is the place to start. But would you read that letter for us? Yeah, of course. Uh, subject is caring turned creepy. Three years ago, my dad died, leaving my mom alone at home. My dad and our next door neighbor were close and he was always helpful when my dad was sick. He'd also have, keep an eye on the house when my parents went away and cats sit for us. Ever since my dad died, I'm comforted knowing he's there when my mom has car troubles or needs to fix something around the house. Our neighbor has a wife and a baby. My mom even has a car seat so she can pick up their baby from daycare. We have a good neighborly relationship. We've enjoyed his company over the years, though he's always been one to overstay his welcome. He invites himself over and once walked right into the house. He entered from the basement and walked right upstairs. He always brings a bottle of wine from his travels, but drinks most of it and then raids our fridge for beer. Lately, he's turned creepy, texting my mom, telling her that her new haircut looks hot and making a joke about ordering mistletoe when her COVID test was negative. He's even said, I was going to see if I could come over so that we could make out, but that would be inappropriate. Because he lives next door, he knows when my mom is home and is texted, commenting about what she's been watching on TV. The list goes on. His actions are obviously inappropriate, and I don't know what to do to help my mom. I've suggested she tell his wife and change the locks. I want to intervene and say he needs to back off, but my mom would be so angry if she found out. She doesn't entertain his advances, just responds with a laugh, ha-ha. I've told her to just completely ignore them. His behavior is out of line, and I'm starting to worry for her safety. What should I do? Great question. Did you get a sense, reading this, whether you felt that the letter writer still lives with their mother or whether they just live nearby? Uh, you know, uh, what, uh, yes, because it was, uh, we have a good neighborly relationship. And I was wondering, that's what made me think, is the letter writer still living with her mom or his mom? Yeah, the the, the beginning, obviously, leaving my mom alone at home, to me, I, th- I think answers the question, like, if the letter writer's mom were alone at home, then by definition, the letter writer doesn't live with her. But it does sound like the letter writer either lives nearby or visits a lot or has maybe only recently moved out. So that felt like a potentially open question to me. Yeah. Or I want to say is really still attached. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I don't want to say I feel like, oh, I can confidently assess this guy is no threat because I don't ever want to like err on the side of like, you're nuts. Everything's fine. Or like maybe <laughs> right. not ever, but like I, I want to be fairly confident if I make such a ruling. Well, and you, and you want to err on the side of safety, right? Always. Yeah. But so, you know, I can understand why, particularly as, you know, this is your mother, um, feeling like his texting has lately turned inappropriate, potentially creepy, potentially unwelcome potentially a number of different things. But I think what feels crucial to me is you believe that if you were to intervene, that your mother would be angry with you, that she would not agree with you, and that she would not, you know, follow up with whatever, you know, boundary you were trying to impose on her behalf. So that is, I think, pretty crucial to pay attention to, if only because it will not do any good if you say to this guy, leave my mom alone. And then he tells your mom and she says, I don't feel that way. Sorry about that. Like that would just have done nothing. Uh, uh, well, Danny, for me, that that's the whole letter. You know, uh, your mom is an adult. Uh, you're not, your mom is no longer married to your father, unfortunately. Um, it's as with the first letter, you know, it's, it's, 
you have to respect your daughter's boundaries and you have to respect that she's an individual and can do what she wants. With this letter, you have to respect your mother's boundaries and you have to respect your mother's an individual and does what she wants. If you say to your mother, listen, I feel this is creepy and inappropriate. I'm a little worried for your safety. And your mom says, well, that's ridiculous. I'm not worried for my safety at all. And maybe you say, well, these are the specific reasons I'm worried for your safety or whatever. But at the end of the day, she's going to have to make that call. And for an adult child or a child of any age, but let's, let's assume an adult, to come in and sort of police your parents' relationships uh, I don't know. I don't. I, I. I would never do that with my own parents. Uh, and and were I in the situation, I would express my. I would first start with humor. Say, "Isn't this weird? Is this inappropriate?" And try to take my mom's temperature on it. If she says, "Yeah, it is inappropriate," then eventually, over a period of time, maybe we'd come to a conclusion that, "Yeah, okay, this is not something I want." But that has to be her, her, or his mother's decision, you know. Um, I, and to me, that's pretty open and shut his or her discomfort, I think what I perceived from the letter was a sense of like, that's my mom, you know? Uh, and yeah, some a person is your parent, but um, they're also a free individual to associate with whoever they want, however they want to associate with them. Yeah, and you know, you know, there was that line about like, we have a good neighborly relationship, which I think is what it kind of tripped me up because it sounds like mm-hmm, ongoing, we are neighbors, but my mom lives alone. And my my sense is that your mom, letter writer, maybe shares a lot of her texts with you. I don't know if she does that just all the time or if it's just with this neighbor. So that might be a question for you to consider. Like, is this just like my mom often shows me her texts from various people and this has just like brought something up for me? Or does she show me his text messages a lot because on some level she's a little uncomfortable, maybe not to the level that I am. So if it's the first, if she just shows you her text messages all the time or for some reason you're like, I don't know if she like hands you her phone to like get something and she's like, I don't care if you read my texts. Like mm-hmm. maybe that's just like a case of I can step back a little bit from that. If she's showing you his text specifically, I think maybe there's an opportunity to say like, I know that you don't think that he's like being creepy in maybe the way that I do, but some of this does strike me as a little bit too personal and like something that he didn't used to do five years ago. Do you feel uncomfortable about that? And maybe listen and give her a chance to say what she thinks. I see, see, I think, Danny, I think that's exactly it. That that this has to be a drawing out of your mind. What do you really feel? And women are so socialized not to say no to men in any regard, and they're socialized to be available to men and all the rest of that stuff. And it's it as as her child, it's an opportunity for you to really give her a place where she feels safe to say, well, what do you really think is going on? Do you want me to say something? She may turn around after some thought and go, yeah, you're right. This is inappropriate. This does make me feel uncomfortable. I didn't realize it until we talked about it. That's a good thing. Um, The other aspect of this that I want to bring up, which is I got a sense from this letter that what was really going on was the, the, the subtext might be my mom is flirting with the neighbor and that makes me uncomfortable or this neighbor is flirting with my mom and my mom is receptive to it and that makes me uncomfortable. Right, or if not receptive, not shutting it down in the way that I want her to. Exactly, and I mean, these are are nuances that you can't hardly, there's no way you can tease out from this letter. Um, But, you know, to me, the central issue is the safety of your mom. Once the safety issue is determined one way or the other, then if it's like, well, my mom's sexuality makes me uncomfortable or whatever it is, 
or people perceiving my mother as a sexual person or being attracted to or whatever makes me uncomfortable. That's very common. But that's a ther- that's a personal therapy issue, not necessarily a, a to-do item with your mom. Right. Yeah. My question there is definitely, is there an opportunity here to set a different kind of boundary with your mother? If historically you look at her texts a lot or she shows you her texts often and you would like to do that a little bit less, like that might be the most appropriate avenue. Again, just because like a really separate question of whether or not your neighbor's flirtation is welcome, something she feels neutral about, something she feels ambivalent about, something she dislikes, that is separate from the question of would it be improved if her adult child either intervened directly and said to him, stop texting my mom flirtatious comments about her haircut, or if my adult (laughs) child got in touch with his wife. And I think your mom has said, or, or you, you believe that your mom thinks, and I think I agree, that that would not make anything better for her, completely absent from the question of whether or not she dislikes this. So I, I think we can set aside, you know, it's unclear how long ago he once walked into the house. That To me, that could have happened 10 years ago. That could have happened two years ago. I don't know. Um, but I'll just say that, like, Historically, there's been a good neighborly relationship. Your mom sometimes picks up their kid from school. Um, there's a kind of like flowing back and forth. I noticed that too. That's a level of intimacy that's germane to this yeah, conversation. They're pretty close. Um, so there's there's that. And I think that, again, if there were different information in this letter where I also shared your sense of like, he's doing really big, really surprising, really jarring things, like letting himself into the house in the middle of the night or like, I, you know, I don't want to like come up with a lot of details, but like I can certainly imagine something that would raise my antenna. I would say that based on what you have described here, there's a possible range from he's flirting more with your mother in a lighthearted way and she feels a little weird about it, but mostly is not super affected. She's maybe feeling a little nervous about like, I don't want him to escalate, but I don't want to offend him. And I'm worried that he'll get huffy if I say something and I'm trying to navigate that up to and including, I really don't like this at all, but I just don't want to rock the boat. I don't know. So I'll just say, I don't think you've described anything here that makes me think she is in immediate danger or like, is it the level of needs to change the locks or that you should be overriding her decisions on any of those fronts? So, uh, you know, I'm afraid that on that front, if you said to your mom, I think you should tell his wife and change the locks, and she said, nope, you have to respect that. Yeah. If this were my mom in this situation, and and I have to say, when I was a little boy, my mother raised me by herself. It was the 70s, and my mother was very pretty. So I was around a lot of men being inappropriate. Let's put it that way. Um, The most important thing for me, if I was this letter writer, would be to sit my mom down and say, um, I've noticed the situation. It gives me a little bit of concern. These are the reasons that it gives me a little bit of concern, but this isn't any of my business. It's your life and your business and your friendship with this fellow. And I want you to know that whatever you need me to do, I'm here for you. I am your ally. So if you need me to go over and say, hey, knock it off, I'm here. If you need me to back off and you guys start the polyamorous triad. I'm there for that too. I don't, it's none of my business, Mm -hmm. but to really strongly say to your own mom, Hey, you know, I'm on the job here. I want to take care of you. Like you took care of me. You tell me what you need. And that can change too. where today it's all cool, but then he does something and you go, I feel unsafe. I need your help. I will be there in 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. So you don't need to worry about that. 
I think that's great. I think to say, I will make myself available to you. I will share my general concerns with you once. And then beyond that, I will let you make the call. And if you need to call on me, I'm here. And if you don't need me, I will not push. I think that's the best way ahead with this. And again, you know, because I also want to leave room for the possibility that she does find this uncomfortable. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, you might also say, is there anything that you can think of short of um, telling him to knock it off, if that's not something that you're prepared to do, even though I hope you consider it as a possibility? Um, is there anything else that you might like to do differently? Up to and including, you know, if he's coming over and you want to text either me or maybe another friend in the neighborhood to like call and check in just so you feel like a pressure relief valve. Um, if you want to eventually consider whether you would like to change the locks and just do it. And then if he says, oh, my key doesn't work, you can be like, oh, that's wild. Yeah, I forgot to mention I did it for an unrelated. Like, again, like you can do the subterfuge stuff if that's something that she wants. But if she doesn't and she's just like, this is on the level of like somebody occasionally says something lightly flirtatious to me and it's consistent with the kind of neighborly relationship that we've had before. Sometimes I like it a little, sometimes I don't, but it's not rising to the level of like, I'm going to tell your wife, let your mom handle it. But but I will say, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the wife because this is something I want to say before we leave the letter is if it's harmless flirtation, then it's also okay for the letter writer to say to the wife, oh, hey, you know, Jim came over and said to my mom, blah, blah, blah. Isn't that funny? Isn't that inappropriate? Jim's such a knucklehead or whatever. If it's inappropriate or if it's just sort of harmless flirtation, Jim's wife is going to know what her husband is like and the wife is going to oh yeah, okay. But, you know, are they going to laugh or whatever? But if the wife has a reaction and goes, oh, really? He did that? I didn't know that. That's an interesting piece of information as well. Yeah, I mean, my, I think my kind of gut reaction there is like, if there were genuinely a question of the letter writer's mother's safety, I would say, you know, roping in this guy's wife is not going to be the <laughs> next, you know what I mean? Like, she's not responsible for like making sure he behaves safely. So to me, it felt a little bit more like I want to like triangulate this guy's wife in order to shame him or get him to do what I want. No, I, I don't, I, I'm, I guess it's interesting that you say that because I don't think of it that way. I, th yeah. I, I am a very friendly person. And if I get misinterpreted as being inappropriately flirty or something like that, um, first of all, I'd want to know because I wouldn't want to make somebody uncomfortable. And second of all, having been married for as long as I have, you know, my wife knows me very well. And so maybe it's too delicate to do. But the reason I bring it up is to say that if you're really just being a good guy and a good friend and a good neighbor, then your intent is clear. You're just being a good guy. And, and, and you wouldn't want her to feel uncomfortable either. Like as the, as the neighbor, you'd be like, you'd be horrified that you were making this person that you were friends with uncomfortable. You wouldn't want that. That's not your intent. So in any case, I, I don't, for me, and maybe this is my sort of Midwestern kind of asexuality performance coming out, that you can do that, that you can sort of say, oh, you know, what a knucklehead and see and see and get some information as to whether this is really, you know, harmless or whether this is kind of male angling. Cause of course people do that. Yeah. I also like, part of me also wonders if like, again, I absolutely leave room for the possibility that this guy is like, has been a good neighbor and is also being a little like annoyingly flirty um, or doing so in a way that's like kind of creepy. I also, part of me was like, you know, the letter writer is 
I, I believe, like a grown adult, and the next door neighbor has a baby. And part of me is wondering, like, does your neighbor perhaps see your mother as like a sweet old lady? such that like that kind of, again, not that that would mean that it would be impossible to flirt with someone much older than yourself in a way that would make them uncomfortable or it's therefore, but I, part of me also wonders like, does he think of her as being so much older than him? Like the sweet old widow woman who lives next door that saying something like your new haircut's so cute. I kind of want to come over there and kiss you. Like, again, not that everyone would need to like that or find that cute, but I just, part of me wonders if that's what's, because it, it, it just, I, I think that's a possible reading. That's interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. And certainly people can be creepy to older adults. I don't want to rule that out either. I just think like you you don't have enough information to act overriding your mother's wishes is my kind of just final line there. And um, the most you can do is ask her, how does she feel about it? Yeah, right. Does she know what other options are available to her? Offer as a resource and then back off. And then maybe also consider whether you yourself would like to be a little bit less involved in your mom's like day-to-day texting if it feels like that's making it impossible for you to detach a little. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's wise. And I know I just suggested the last letter writer writer's back, but letter writer, this has been like my kind of best assumption based on what you have in here. If you hear this and you're just like, that's way off base, there's actually a bunch of other stuff I didn't include, but that is genuinely like kind of upsetting or raising a flag, you know, please feel free to write back and let us know if there's a different perspective that that we're missing. Um, you know, I would love to hear how any of that goes. You said to ask you about zines, so I want to ask you about zines. Do you have any recommendations besides Army Man? You know, I don't, but I want to say that um, the humor magazine that I resurrected in college is turning 150 this year. And so I did a bunch of writing over the weekend about what that was like. And it was it was the the real beginning of the zine revolution because it was in 19, went to college in 1987 and then resurrected the Yale record in 1989. And that was it was made possible by the Apple Macintosh and all the rest. There was so much interest oh, wow. um, among a certain type of person in that. I remember this big, thick magazine called Fact Sheet 5, which I think has a relationship with Boing Boing. Maybe they were put up in the same people. I know Boing Boing was another zine, which has turned into a really big, uh, a really big uh, uh, website. Um, but, yeah. but zines were tremendously... Um, I think influential. I, I was born in 69 to my generation's idea of culture. Uh, my wife is listening to a podcast about sassy and sassy really, to my mind, incorporated a lot of the intimacy of zines into the corporate magazine structure, which is what I've been trying to do for my entire career. And it's almost impossible to do. You really, yeah. if you want that intimacy and and ability and freedom and ability to connect with readers almost on a one-to-one level, you got to do it yourself. How um how how long had the record been sort of defunct uh, before you you took it back in hand? I um and it's interesting. I, it was defunct for about twenty years. Uh, uh, the last uh, the last real chairman, our last yeah, the last real chairman was Gary Trudeau, and so I was really puzzled by that when I got to school because I had been I had grown up. I was obsessed with humor magazines from a tiny age, four or five years old. I was reading Mad and I was reading National Lampoon until my mother saw that I was getting the dirty jokes and then she took it away from me. But but I spent most of my um, preteen years and then teen years 
gathering up these old magazines in, in uh, record stores and, and old bookstores and things like that. So when I got to Yale, I assumed that we had a magazine uh, that was similar to the Harvard Lampoon, which had been so culturally prominent from about 65 to, to 85. And when I saw, I heard that it was defunct, I was really shocked by that. Um, was able to restart it in 1989, ran it for a couple of years, and really ran the alumni group for the next 20 years. Um, was able to, went down to New York and worked in magazine publishing, always was trying to start a national humor magazine. Um, in 2003, I was able to put together a publishing, sort of like a magazine in a box, a publishing model for people who wanted to uh, print, or do do print, student print magazines and do them profitably. And so I was able to install that at the record. The, the thing about college magazines or college institutions is that once it's been going for four years, it's been around forever. So I would talk to the students and say, I've got this great new publishing model for you. And they would say, no, we like doing it the way that we're doing it now. And I would say, yes, I know. I was the person who invented that. We need to change it. it you're broke. Um, so they were, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do it until I uh, published a parody of Harry Potter, which sold a lot of copies. So then I called them up and I said, I will actually back you. Um, you know, any losses, we're going to install this model. I'll buy a back page ad and I'll, I'll give you any money that if we lose any money, I'll, I'll, I'll back you for as long as you need. And this model worked so well that they've been profitable ever since, since 2003. Um, and that model actually is a lot of what I used to launch Bystander. So it's interesting. Um, most of all of the energy that used to be in zines is now on the web. Um, but it was a special time. It was a really interesting time. Does that answer your question? <laughs> Very much. Oh my gosh, no. I, I, I am fascinated by this kind of thing and, and both by the idea of, uh, you know, like any kind of college magazine, which as you, as you point out, like has to experience pretty much 100% turnover rate every four or six years. And, and then there also, also, there's no, it's very difficult knowledge transfer. Even at, a, at, even at a place like the Yale Record, it's really hard to teach people year after year. Um, and you want to teach them the skills, but at the same time, you want to give them enough freedom to create it however they want to do it. So um, it, it, it's always working with college students. I love working with college students, um, but it's always a really interesting balance between giving them the tools so that they can be successful, but also not saying you've got to do it this way. And that particularly is tough with comedy because comedy changes so fast. It does. Yeah. Yeah. And in some ways I imagine that the high turnover rate is actually kind of desirable um, because it sort of fits with the pace to begin with. I also, I don't know if you knew this. I didn't know this until earlier. I had pulled up uh, the Wikipedia article for the Yale record and there is a subcategory of pranks. It's just two. Uh, yeah. One from 1902 yeah. on Carrie Nation and one from 2015 about like a fake protest. Um, yeah, yeah. And I just, I, I, I found that incredibly charming. Just like, it's gonna, it's gotta have its own section, but we don't need more than two. Yeah. And the Carrie Nation <laughs> one, you gotta get in there. And yeah. then something happened in 2015. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's the interesting thing about uh, college organizations in general is that there's a sort of general perception of the history. You know, uh, and and one of the things that we're thinking about doing, um, you know, I have my hands full with the bystander because I do everything and publish it, edit it, design it, do everything, which is what I learned at the Yale Record. To to restart the Yale Record, I had to teach myself how to do all wear all the hats. 
So I really look at magazines. I do magazines like um, Fellini does movies. You know, it's like you do, you really have to kind of, or at least I do, you have a sort of a tourist uh, idea of how to do it. Um, and that is not really, I don't see that in corporate magazines anymore. You know, if you look at, I'm off the topic, but uh, if you look at what I think is probably one of the best magazines there ever was, which is Harold Hayes' Esquire in the, in the 60s. I mean, it's a very, I wouldn't say it's, it's not a tourist because it was a huge magazine with a bunch of people working on it, but you really did get a sense, you know, a good magazine is really a, it's, it feels very personal. It feels very personal from the editors and the writers to you, and you feel very personal. It's, it's, it's a place you go. So I'm always trying to figure out how to preserve that experience, deepen that experience, and make it, if not exactly profitable, at least somewhat practical for people. That is, yeah, I, I, I could go on like this for such a long time, but I do want, I, I don't know how familiar you were with the Carrie Nation prank, but I am yes. desperate for you to help me parse this. So if it's okay with you, I'm just going to read the description here on the Wikipedia page and you can tell me what I'm missing. Okay. 1902, the Yale record pranked Carrie Nation, the famous temperance activist, pretending to be a temperance group. They brought her to Yale. During her visit, they took a picture with her. At the time, you had to take pictures in the dark, and then a single flashbulb would illuminate the scene. However, in the darkness, the record rapscallions pulled out their mugs to create one of the most iconic prank photos ever. The photo now hangs in the bar at Maury's and at the bar at the Yale Club of New York. Mm -hmm. What was I... Is it just that they're holding mugs and she wouldn't have known they would hold mugs? It was... So what they did was... Yes, right. They were holding mugs, but they were also putting... So what happened was... They all got themselves positioned, and then the photographer said, okay, the lights are going to go off, and when it goes on, be ready. The lights went off, and then all the, they, I think these guys were called the Jolly Seven or the Jolly Eight or whatever preppy name seven. they did. Um, they all grabbed their cigarettes and their pipes and their, because she was anti-smoking, I believe, as well. And when it, when the flashbulb popped, they were all, and then one of them has a noose, I think, that is, he's, he's sort of saying, I'm going to hang Carrie Nation. Oh, my um, God. Yeah, it's it's a little intense, and and um, uh, Yale back in those days was a little intense about that kind of stuff. It was it was notable for its uh, drinking and carousing, so that's kind of what the background of that of that story was. You know, uh, my favorite. I ha I love college pranks. We didn't do many college pranks, but I love them. There's a great book called Whenever Possible Involve a Cow, which is wonderful college pranks. And uh, uh, I remember one that the guys up at Harvard did where uh, George Plimpton dressed up as a red coat and got a horse and, 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 and uh, went around Boston Common uh, yelling, disperse ye rebels, disperse. So that's the kind of um, arcane humor that uh, college humor is, is, is so good for. But I will say, you know, the interesting, the thing that keeps me so fascinated with college humor is that I think around after 1970 or so, college, what used to be college humor is now the national sense of humor. It's very, uh, the, the, the people do, what people do professionally in comedy writing is they are college humorists. What, what was in 1950, that's the kind of humor that they're doing. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you so much for walking me through that. I've never felt more like, I think I'm missing a sentence. They all pulled out their <laughs> mugs and the photo now hangs on the wall. I'm just like, so they were just holding cups. Uh, all right, I get it. She didn't like drinking and they're holding cups. Fair enough. I thought there'd be more, but I, I guess that's uh, that's just Yale for you. Yeah, well, that is kind of just Yale for you. And there's anything, have any history having to do with colleges or certainly college student organizations is it's a game of telephone every generation us uh, an important sentence is lost. Well, um, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time. I know this is a little bit outside of the remit of the kind of work that you and I it normally is. discuss. And so I'm so grateful that you were interested in, in giving this a shot. I had a wonderful time. I did too. And I was talking to your producer and saying, oh God, I feel like this is the least entertaining hour I've ever spent with Danny. And he's so funny. And I'm so uh, I, it's just been, I have been a fan of your writing for so many years. It's been such a pleasure to do this and such a pleasure to um, see your shorts. They're actually sweatpants. They go all the way down to the, to the ankle. So oh, one no of kidding. these days, okay, I will visit Santa Monica. I will go see the unofficial mayor who will hopefully still be you. Uh, and, yes. and you will get to see all the different sweatpants that I own. And we'll get to go, I don't know, find a lot of- <laughs> or, I'll come, or I'll come out to Brooklyn and hang out with you guys. Beautiful. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I would also like to leave room for the possibility that, like, letter writer, even if you had, even if you had cheated on your husband and really hurt him and your relationship ended as a result, I would sure hope that your friends would, again, at the very least, like, have a conversation with you and say, that's really hard. I'm not going to invite you two to the same dinner party. But also, like, life is complicated. People cheat. It doesn't have to be the best thing you ever did, um, but I also don't need to, like, turn my head when you walk down the street or something. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.